for somebody who is maybe a little beat down by rejection or they're not getting any positive answers, do you have any type of advice for them to like keep pushing? I actually live in um, this community in New Jersey and Thomas Edison lived there. And I think he said, I didn't fail 5,000 times. It just took me 5,000 tries before I got it right. I think persistence really does pay off. I very much believe in that. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bougie Best Friend Podcast. I hope you are having a fabulous day. And if you are not having a fabulous day, well, you're about to have one because I cannot let that happen. And that's why you're here hanging out with me and my guest, Alana, in the next hour-ish. I just love bringing on female CEOs. I love surrounding myself with hardworking, inspiring women. And I'm so grateful that Alana was on the podcast. So a little bit about her. She is a seasoned CEO and a board member with a wealth of expertise in the beauty industry. She's currently the CEO of Revive Skincare, a luxury brand. And she's been instrumental in driving brand development, expanding internationally. Alana's impressive background includes leadership positions at iconic companies such as Estee Lauder and L'Oreal. I had such a great time talking to Alana about all things business and how to be the best you can be, like how to be irreplaceable at work. That's how I'm calling this episode. Okay, without further ado, let's dive right in. Alana, welcome to Bougie Best Friend Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be here. I'm super excited too. We met up a few weeks ago at the Revive event in Miami and we were, I don't know, I was like, I need to have you on my podcast. I had so much fun chatting with you and I feel like your story can inspire so many women listening. So I'm super grateful you're here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I felt the same way. And to be honest, I don't always feel like a connection immediately to people. So I, I really enjoyed the time we spent together and I was really looking forward to coming back. Thank you. Well, the feeling is mutual. Your career is so impressive. How did you get into the beauty space? Give me a little background of what made you fall in love with the beauty world. Sure. Uh, actually, you know, very honestly, I never thought I would end up in beauty. I had no idea. So if I go back to you know, high school, the things that I loved, and I'll tell you why I go all the way back. I loved studying art history and I loved studying French. Those were two things I really loved in high school. And when I went to college and his, yeah, and history and art history. So when I went to Just college- Just for context, where did you grow up and where did you I go to grew, school? Yes, I grew up in New Jersey. My parents are first generation American. I grew up in New Jersey I mentioned the first generation American because they were very focused on education and making sure that we went to college. And I didn't go very far away from home uh, to college. I went to Columbia University as an undergraduate, so New York City, so it wasn't so far away. Mm -hmm. And when I was at Columbia, I really wanted to study art history, but that was a little bit too far for my father. He was like, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> and so I studied history. That's what mm -hmm. I studied. Um, but being in New York City, 
part of, I think, the appeal of being in New York is the, the job opportunities that it offers. And so from the time that I was a freshman in college, I always had an internship or some kind of part-time job, and I was trying to figure out what I liked to do. I had internships in public relations, and that led me to actually getting an internship in corporate communications. And I worked um, in corporate communications, writing for an internal newspaper for a huge company. It's called Altria now, but it used to be called Philip Morris. So mm-hmm. they like made, the cigarette it, brand, exactly, exactly. Okay. And they also owned Kraft Foods. And so they were this huge, huge consumer company. And because they made cigarettes and also beer, they used to give a lot of money to the arts as a way to kind of offset, you know, the industries that they Mm -hmm. were in. And it was through working there that I first became acquainted with the idea that companies give money to support arts organizations, museums, symphonies, ballets, etc. And so I was like, that's my dream. I want to work for a company and give away money to support arts organizations. And so I started investigating that. And people said to me, Alana, that's not actually a career path. It's kind of like you work in the company and like, one like step, your last job before they retire you is you get to do that. Um, and then you're retired. Mm-hmm. Like your last hurrah. <laughs> exactly. But they said, but if that's something that you're interested in, what you should actually do is go work on the other side. You should work in fundraising and you should work for an arts organization asking companies for money and make the connections. And so maybe one day you could move over. And so actually, that's what I did. My first job after I graduated from college, I worked at the Juilliard School, Mm -hmm. um, the the music school in New York City, um, and I worked in their fundraising department. Back to sort of my first generation American parents, my father was like, okay, this not-for-profit stuff. When are you going to go back to graduate school? (laughs) So I was like, I don't know. I don't even know, you know, what I like. So I took a marketing class. And I realized I really liked marketing. Um, And I also realized something else, which was what I was doing, fundraising, was marketing. If you Mm. think about it, you know, you're you're an organization that's looking for money and you're reaching out to donors for that money. And you have to present your organization, why someone should donate to you, what makes you different, etc., And so it really was a form of marketing. And so after I took that first marketing class, I started to take all the prerequisites to get an MBA that I hadn't taken as an undergraduate. And there were a lot. Like I had not taken pre-calculus or calculus. I had not taken macroeconomics or microeconomics. So Mm -hmm. I was working full time and taking these classes, thinking about applying to business school. And at the same time, I was thinking about, okay, how do how can I go work in marketing? And so I had this one other skill, and nobody thought I had any marketing skills working in fundraising because I made the connection. Nobody else could mm-hmm. see the connection. I could speak French because it was something that I learned in high school. It was a passion. I had traveled to France. I had, I had lived abroad for a summer. Someone had lived with my family. 
And is so, that was your family's from, I'm guessing? No, my family is from Eastern Europe, actually. And when nobody in my family <laughs> speaks French. I, I just was a, something I gravitated towards and liked. And so that. that's kind of how I learned. And so I ended up getting a job actually first um, because I could speak French and it happened to be at Chanel. Not with Chanel Beauty or with Chanel Fashion. Chanel is actually privately owned by an individual family. It was then and it is now. And in addition to owning Chanel uh, Beauty and Fashion, they own uh, businesses in many other industries. Wait, Chanel is a privately owned company? Yes. Till this day? To this day by an individual family, the Wertheimer family. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay, I will Google that right now as soon as Google. <laughs> Google. So that wow. being said, they have they had an office based out of their New York headquarters where a group of executives worked managing some of the other businesses. And I basically got a job as someone's secretary there. Mm-hmm. But it was so incredibly glamorous in to be in these Chanel offices. And I saw all the beauty people and all the, the fashion dream. people. <laughs> and then I was mesmerized. And I started, I saw for the first time, you know, the trade publications about the beauty Mm -hmm. industry. And I started to read them and I was like, wow, this is really fascinating. And you could do this and it's very glamorous and you could speak French. Wow. This is like, that's what I want to do. But I really realized that I didn't think I could ever sort of move from what I was doing in this family office to working in the beauty team. So I just started writing to companies, very honestly, and kind of applying, sending my resume, which, you know, wasn't very long. I was out Mm -hmm. of college for one and a half or two years and applying for jobs. How many emails did you send before you got a yes? First of all, they were letters. Oh my God. Second of all, there was no email. And second of all, I, I mean, and this is really, this is important, hundreds probably. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say that because my own children are applying now for internships. Two of them are in college and they're like, mom, I mean, I've sent 10 emails. I've applied to 10 places. And I'm like, you have to apply to a hundred places to even think about getting one a hundred percent. I just kept saying, sending letters cold. Like I would find out who was, you know, sometimes I would, they would have a name. Sometimes they wouldn't. I would read trade publications and I would like read articles about executives. And so I'd find a name. And so then I'd send a letter to them. And I got an interview at the company that uh, it was a subsidiary at the time. So it had a different name, but it was the subsidiary in the U.S. of L'Oreal. And that's Mm -hmm. ultimately really how I ended up in beauty. So when I got hired by L'Oreal, again, I got hired by someone to be their assistant. So second time uh, being someone's assistant. But they hired me because they said, okay, you can speak French. We need someone who can speak French. But we can see that, you know, you may be a little overqualified for this job. But if you do this for us for a year, it was an individual. He said, if you do this for me for a year, you know, I'm very busy and I have a couple of different jobs. I will make sure you get promoted into marketing. And, and you expressed I, that you wanted to be in marketing at yes, the interview? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I said, I, you know, my ultimate goal is to be in marketing and I, I'm uh, taking classes to go back to business school. And I think that's what I'm interested in. 
And he said, okay, if you do this for me for a year, I, I will make sure you get into marketing. And, you know, I think we all know, you know, people can't always be relied upon to keep those promises. And in big companies, sometimes it's much bigger than them. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have anything to lose, you know. And so I took the job. At least this time I was working in in a beauty division. He was in finance, which was a really interesting way for me to enter. But it was a year later, he was true to his word. There was an opportunity and I got promoted into marketing. And At the same time, I had been accepted to go to business school at night and part-time while I worked full-time, and L'Oreal offered tuition reimbursement. So it was kind of... Is that something they do often? Yes, they do. It was kind of the best of all worlds. My, I got into beauty, I got into marketing, I was getting an MBA, and someone else was paying how could I, how could I turn that down? That's amazing. That's like literally what everybody would love. Do something you love. Somebody else is paying for it. You're learning from the best people. It's incredible. I love that. So for the next three and a half years, basically, I worked at L'Oreal and I went to school at night. And, you know, over the years, I had increasing responsibility. And, you know, sometimes I I couldn't make it to class and sometimes I started to travel and sometimes, you know, I missed class because of, of travel. So I found a friend and she used to, she worked in media and entertainment. And so we used to cover for each other. You know, if she mm-hmm. was away, I would take the notes. If I you was would sign, away, a, you sign her me. name on a class. I it, did that Well, not lot. that far, but yeah. And, <laughs> Oops, um, I and I finished, you know, I, I got my MBA and I graduated. Although I do have to tell you to this day, I still have dreams that I didn't finish. Like it's, wow. I, it's, a, and that was a really long time ago, but, yeah. um, I did. I, I, so I did both. It taught me how to be a parent because I used to say there are 24 hours in a day and sometimes you need to use them all literally Mm -hmm. because I obviously had to perform at work because work was paying for school. So, Mm -hmm. you know, work was obviously the priority school, which had never been the case before for me in my life. School had to be a second priority, but I still had to pass my classes to get reimbursed. Mm-hmm. And so if you work all day and then you're, we, I used to go to school from seven to 10, two nights a week. And then we would also have homework and projects, et cetera. And so, you know, between the two, it was obviously a really long day. And then there was homework, et cetera. Like I, you know, used to say sometimes like, you got to use all the hours in a day, which then prepares you to be a parent. I just had a conversation with my mom this morning. I don't have time for anything. I mean, I run my own everything, business, social media, everything. And I just don't even know how she had a child at my age when she had two kids, actually. Obviously, it was different times and she didn't, you know, do a million things like I'm doing right now. But as I'm getting older, I'm more and more impressed with single moms and moms in general, because even as I mentioned when we were speaking before, my brother is in town right now. And just having somebody else that you need to constantly think about in a good way, it's a lot. So I mean, shout out to all moms out there. The advice that I give to people is you 100% cannot do this alone. And I just want you to know that I did not do it alone. Obviously, first of all, I have an incredibly supportive husband. The way we honestly think about it, someone made a joke once, but the way we think about it is like, it's a corporation. (laughs) And a family is a corporation. And like, 
their divisions. We used、mm-hmm. to make jokes like, "There's the childcare division, the transportation division, the entertainment division, you know, the nutrition division." And like someone was responsible for like I do not I did not do like the bills and the home the home maintenance division, but、mm-hmm. I did do the logistics and the childcare division. He was forms like、uh-huh. I'm terrible at the forms. He used to do all the forms, you know. Things I need to、like、just、that. say forms are the most annoying thing, and nobody speaks about this. Filling out forms with the same type of information every single time, even sometimes when I'm logged out of my email,、I、have to put in that password every time. It's driving me insane. I tell people having kids is about forms and logistics. <laughs> What are they allowed to get there, and how are they getting there? Honestly,、oh、that、God. is like: Have you do, does the school have the medical form? Does the camp have the medical、yeah. form? Do they have the permission form? Can they give them a, like all of these things? That is what、so、having children、forms. is about. Anyway, that was you know a long way to tell you how I got into beauty, and then.、Mm-hmm. How I kind of moved then became around building a network. You know, I left L'Oreal the first time because I followed a boss. My boss went to Avon. I followed、mm-hmm. her there. I met somebody, and they brought me back to L'Oreal, and I was there for another four years, so eight years in total. And then I met someone, and they brought me to Estee Lauder, and I then spent almost eight years there. And then you know, through someone I knew, they reached out to me, and that's kind of how I took my next step. And so, one of the things, and I think we we spoke a little bit about this, that I do really love about this industry is it's very large on one hand on a global scale, yet on on another hand, it's very small. And I took a one year hiatus into fashion, so I I,、mm-hmm. I can't say I really know other industries very well. But what I do love about it is it's very relationship oriented, and the positive of that is I think it's you can build a real network of people, and that's one of the ways that I've really been able to kind of build and、um, and advance my career. I have to say that I 100% agree with you, and even your PR and influencer girl Alyssa, I've known her since she worked at Revlon, and yes, then she、exactly. worked at Elizabeth Arden, and then she told me that you brought her to Revive now. Yes,、so it's so、we、funny. worked together once before, actually.、Mm-hmm. So interestingly,、um, the person who runs marketing for Revive. Was my intern at Estee Lauder? Wow! Was my head of marketing at Laura Geller Beauty, and then now we're working together again at Revive, and we've always stayed in touch. And Alyssa worked with us at Laura Geller Beauty for this person, so it's、um, that's kind of how. And that's actually true about a number of our employees. My CFO and I worked together. Previously, and he brought a lot of people. He runs finance operations and HR, so kind of everything back of house. And there, about five people who have been with us for five years, who are all people who worked with him in previous companies. And then there, are, you know, some other people who I worked with in in previous companies, including our head of e-commerce and digital, who's in Croatia. We worked together、wow. in the past too. She worked at Estee Lauder, and then she also worked at、um, Laura Geller with us. We have the freedom, which is one of the things I really like about running a small company, to build the team and select all of the people ourselves. And so, you know, we get to work with people we. Have a proven history with, and 
and really like, which helps make work not work, but more fun. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts of CEOs, how they're running their businesses and what is the most important thing. And I hear them often say that if you have somebody who is toxic or negative, you need to get rid of them as soon as you can, because they're going to spread their toxicity to everyone else. And they're starting going to start gossiping. They're going to start creating all this negativity in the office. It's just not a good environment to work in and come to something like that every single day. So I would love to hear from you when you are hiring someone, what are you looking for in them? That's a great question. And it's actually really relevant to something we're, we're working on now. So when we all the people who are running Revive today became involved with Revive, which was about five and a half years ago, we actually created a set of company values. And they're part of everyone's goals. The values of the company are part of everyone's goals, and people get evaluated as part of their year and performance review against these these values. And actually, we sort of have embarked on a slightly different strategy, you know, now that we're five years into running the company. And we actually asked our employees, like uh, the next level down from the executive team, to update the values of the company Mm -hmm. to sort of to see if there was anything we wanted to change to be more in line with the strategy. And so the values are very reflective, I think, of what we look for as a company, which is we look for people who want to work independently, who want to have accountability, who want to think about this business in an entrepreneurial way, and who want to kind of treat it as if it were their own, who understand that they have to work collaboratively, but also with a level of respect, who want to have passion around uh, what they're doing, but also who want you know, people who have really high standards and want to, you know, sort of execute with excellence. So those are all things we look for. And we also look for flexible, like people who can be flexible because things can change really quickly. I would say people who can also laugh and have fun. I love that. And how would you say the difference is like now you're running a smaller company Mm -hmm. versus when you were working at L'Oreal and these huge, huge companies. What is the difference in the company cultures? Well, one is definitely hierarchy and speed of decision making. Um, And I think that was one of the things for me. um, You know, I, I have to say that I learned everything I know, really, from working at L'Oreal, Avon and Estee Lauder. And I would never take those experiences away because it was like, you know, I got an MBA. It took me three and a half years. It was like another 20 years of, of a beauty MBA, really being exposed to the smartest people, you know, incredible projects, all of those things. And so I would never trade it for anything. But there were definitely things that for me personally were difficult. One was speed of decision making often is slow. And there, and that's because there were just a lot of layers of, of people who had to sign off on a project. And often, especially when you're at the more junior level, you weren't even in the room to sort mm-hmm. of defend your project, your work, et cetera. And it could be, you could work on something for months and then, you know, people would come out of a meeting and it was scrapped. And, and they're like, oh, we don't like this actually. Exactly. And like you had to start over. So that I mean, that was one thing that uh, and I understand that. Right. I'm sure there were business reasons behind it and Mm -hmm. business decisions. 
Part of it was not being in the room and being part of the conversation. And that's understandable as a junior person, but still frustrating. And part of it was just how long you spend actually working on something and then it can go away. And then the other is just, you know, the more, I think it's really common nature, right? It's human nature that sometimes the more people, the more politics, especially the more layers, the you know, et cetera. And it just reached a, a point for me where I was, I felt I was very far away from the work and that my job was really more about maneuvering politics than it was about marketing products, running businesses, et cetera. And I wanted to have a little bit more ownership of my, of my destiny, which included controlling my own time, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're always working on somebody else's clock, you're not really in control of your own time. And I wanted to have a little bit more, you know, control. So I think those are some of the the biggest differences. The other really big difference, right, is I am extremely close to every financial decision we make, right? I have to think mm-hmm. about everything in terms of how does that affect cash? Am I going to buy inventory, pay people, et cetera? And I was very, very far away from that in a big company. I'm learning so much already. I would love to touch on the topic of networking that we discussed in the very beginning. For somebody who might not be in New York or somebody who doesn't have those connections, do you have any type of advice or how can they kind of get their foot in the door? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think in a way, I almost feel like networking is so much easier now than it used to be. You know, there's that song in Hamilton, like you have to be in the room where it happens. Like, I don't think that's true anymore about anything. So one of the things I noticed during COVID and even friends of mine are have, have pivoted their careers in this direction, there's a lot of education that can happen now online. And a lot of it is free. And I think that's one way to kind of learn, but also see who experts are in certain fields. So that's one thing I, I would recommend to people. And I think by learning sort of who experts are in certain fields, it then gives you the opportunity to reach out to people. I personally think LinkedIn is a great networking tool. And honestly, when I have to hire people, very often I just look through LinkedIn, not without even posting a job, but look at people who work in that role in competitive companies It's easy to see their background and I reach out to them and people answer me and we have conversations and I've met people and hired people that way. So I think that's another way to meet people. You know, there are a lot of industry-based Facebook groups um, or I actually, when Clubhouse first started during COVID, I met a lot of people on Clubhouse, like dermatologists were sort of You know, now everybody takes for granted in skincare that like, you know, the dermatologists are on TikTok and they're all, but at the time it was really something that was just starting. And I used to enter these like clubhouse rooms where the derms were talking about certain things, et cetera. And then I would write to them afterwards. And we actually did some social media partnerships that way. And I do the same, you know, from a social media perspective for Revive, you know, I I do a lot of, I answer DMs, I write uh, to influencers directly, and I network that way and have met people that way. You know, I think if you're focused and you you know sort of who you want to meet, 
what 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 areas might be interesting to you if you research them and just start reaching out to people you'd be surprised i think that people say people... yes more often than you would think absolutely absolutely and so i also believe in that because you asked me you know how many job rejections did i get and how many letters you know when i was looking when i was exploring this idea of like working for a company and on, on the art side You know, I basically took my program from the opera and I wrote to every single company in that program to see if they had a dedicated department that gave money and, and um, funded the arts. And people actually wrote back to me. Um, and like I wrote to foundations and people wrote back to me and or agreed to have a telephone call with me. And I learned that way. I didn't know anything, you know, and I learned that way. And then, you know, of course, there are people who go to schools, have alumni organizations. There are all kinds of trade organizations. So I'll give a plug. Cosmetics has a trade organization. It's called Cosmetic Executive Women. It's relatively inexpensive to join. It gives you access to a ton of, of information about the industry, trade reports, members. And so... All of these, um, all industries have something like that, which are a way to begin to network and make connections. For somebody who is maybe a little beat down by rejection or they're not getting any positive answers, do you have any type of advice for them to like keep pushing? I actually live in um, this community in New Jersey. That's the first gated community in the United States. And Thomas Edison lived there. Wow. And so I'll give you a quote. You're so from... fascinating, by the way. Like <laughs> I'll, I'm learning I'll give so me much. This I quote love it. From, from Thomas Edison. And I think he said, I didn't fail 5,000 times. It just took me 5,000 tries before I got it right. I know that it seems incredibly disheartening. And also people question themselves, like, maybe I should just give up and I'm not good at this and I need to try something else. And I I am practical and I do believe you need a plan B, uh, but I do, I do think you just have to s stay at things and they don't come easily right away. And certainly if they do, it's sort of more luck than anything else. I mean, timing and luck is a big part of everything also, but I, I think persistence really does pay off. I, I very much, uh, I very much believe in that. I feel like people sometimes don't know if it's signs from the universe telling them they should give up or is it just the time wasn't right. And I'll give you an example. When I first moved to New York, when I was 22, I really wanted this job and I applied and I went through an interview process and I didn't get the job. And I was so mad. I was so disappointed and everything. But I'm so grateful that I didn't get that job at that very moment because I was not, I'm not going to say I was not good enough for the job, but I didn't know anything about the job. And then two years later, I got it because I worked on myself and I developed skills that were needed for, I mean, it was a similar job. It was not the same job. I was kind of grateful that I didn't get that job at that point because I feel like I would ruin my relationship with those, you know, the situation or whatever it was. So I feel like sometimes you should just trust and, you know, I don't want to go all spiritual right now, but you, you need to trust the timing of your life and the right thing is going to happen at the right time. And also you said something else, which is, you know, you worked on your personal evolution during that time. I think the question people need to ask themselves is if, if they're not winning, 
right, with the approach that they're taking? Do they need to change or evolve the approach? And I think that's something that I question myself, not in a, in a, a way of doubt, but more in a way of evolution on a pretty regular basis. And that's something when you become a CEO, you're not really getting a performance review. No one's giving you feedback and certainly not. No one's going like, hey, I want a great job today. Or, you know, it's either you're expected to perform or you're not, you know, or you're not. And so I think you have to learn in life how to evaluate and evolve for yourself. And, you know, I can tell you this year there was, you know, we set some milestones for ourselves as a company and there was, there were some personal milestones that I had set for myself and some of them we didn't achieve. And so I wanted to understand why and could I have done, approached the situation differently. And so while I didn't make it incredibly public, I reached out to a few people in the industry who I really trust and respect their opinion. And I kind of said, listen, I'm putting myself on a CEO listening tour here, like, this was a goal we set for ourselves. It didn't happen. I'd love your feedback about you, what your observations are and why. There's another saying, um, which is the definition of insanity is doing the mm-hmm. same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I mean, I do think that it's not that you should give up, but you do perhaps need to change the approach, right? And mm-hmm. so that's something that I, I try and... Um, make sure that I do. Here's a question I get very often on my Wobble Coco do's. Let's say you have a job and your boss isn't nice or doesn't like you or is making your life hell. What can you do? But but they love the job. They want to stay at the job, but somebody there, you know, reporting directly is just not it. First of all, it's such a common, it's not even just that it's a common question. It's just a really common occurrence, right? It, it just happens all the time. I've been in that situation. I'm sure people have been in that situation with me, uh, you know, and so there are a couple of things. One is like, if the if you love the company, but this person is just really difficult, there, I think there are a few things. One is sometimes situations do change, meaning, A, are you going to, one way, one approach is you're going to wait it out longer than them. Like, <laughs> you know, you really want to be there, maybe give it some time and see if they really end up staying. So that's one. The second is, of course, you can always kind of come forward and say you want to work somewhere else within the organization, you know, if that's possible. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it is. And then, you know, the third is it is everyone's job to kind of learn how to manage their boss. Right. And so my husband has this saying, he's like, Alana, that's why they call it work and not play because it actually (laughs) is work like it's not supposed to be fun all the time it is a job and like you do have to learn how to manage your boss I think it's hard for people and I will say I don't want to put this only on women like I know for me it's hard to separate sometimes like the business elements from the personal elements but you know there is there can be sort of just this practice of the separation of the work versus the the personal. And then of course, you know, the, the question is how how open is somebody to having a conversation about like the relationship? When I was younger, I used to think no like, oh my God, I can absolutely positively never speak to my boss. 
about like how they treat me, how they talk to me, what the relationship is. Like I just, I'm just going to suffer in silence a hundred percent of the time. And there were definitely times like I left jobs because of bosses that I shouldn't have. Like if I look mm-hmm. at it in hindsight and I think that, you know, kind of sitting down with someone and talking about the relationship is probably one of the hardest things to do and not my area of strength. Like it's, I find that to be very, very difficult, but I do encourage people now to speak up before they leave, especially if that's a job that they really like otherwise. I think that's great advice because if you just leave, you left the job anyway, but if you kind of try to have one more conversation before leaving, I think that's, I mean, why not? There's nothing to lose. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who might feel like their voice is just not heard in the company and they have, it kind of reminded me of what you were saying earlier that you were not in the room when maybe one, your idea got thrown out for somebody, maybe they have these amazing ideas. I know, I remember that happened to me when I was much younger and when I was in the boys club, let's say, I felt like people were always just looking at me through this lens of, oh, you're just a girl and you're pretty and you just like, you should just sit there and be quiet. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is like, I wasn't always the CEO. I mean, for many years, and it's actually, it's a hard transition actually, because, you know, you form a definition of yourself. And I was always like the youngest person in the room. And now I'm the oldest person in the room. So it's like, it's very different. When I was like, coming up through the ranks, we weren't encouraged really to speak up and certainly not in public and not in meetings. I just think culturally companies are run very differently today. And I'll just tell you from, from me, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this to sound good, but like, I really do want to hear from my employees. And I think what, especially, you know, we're hybrid. And so we're in the office two days a week, but we're home three days a week if we're not traveling. And there's a lot that's on Zoom and you know, it's very hard for a leader to be like, so any questions? And then it's like, "Mm," radio (laughs) silence. Like, I really do want interaction and I want people to ask questions. We do employee surveys so that people, if people feel uncomfortable, they can talk about things anonymously. I'm not saying, you know, we we are going to take every idea and they're definite, but we try to, if we don't take ideas, explain why. And so I... I would I really would encourage people to speak up. You know, it's hard for me to make a blanket statement because I don't know every situation in every company culture, et cetera. But I think the world has really evolved to to wanting to hear from people. And what I can tell you from a leadership perspective is like leaders, and I'm not only talking about myself, I'm kind of talking about anyone who's a leader. Nobody has all the answers. The higher you go, like the thinner the air, right? Like I have so many, I used to be a subject matter expertise. Like I, you know, was good at marketing. That was what I did. I marketed a product. I marketed a category. I marketed a group of categories. Like I was a subject matter expertise. And the higher you go, you know, when you're a CEO, you're not a specialist. You're a generalist. I need to know legal. I need to know finance. I need to know international business. I need to know contracts. Like I need to know a little bit of marketing, performance marketing, e-commerce, et cetera. So like I know a little about a lot, right? And I rely on my subject matter experts. And my job is to make sure strategically, like all the decisions add up 
to a direction that we've plotted for the company and to make sure we're, we're going in that direction. But I absolutely don't know everything as thoroughly as I used to know the things I was an expert in. And mm-hmm. so I do need people who are going to say, Alana, that's a bad idea. Or like, Alana, we should not do that. Or like, let me tell you why we, what I need to know is I need to know the right questions to ask and then how to evaluate the information. And so I really encourage people to, to speak up. And I do, I do always say one thing. I'm like, anybody can come to me with a problem, right? Not anybody can come to me with a solution, but I would like them to. And so if you have a solution or an answer, like definitely speak up. Those are rare. You just said something that's like music to my ears because I have this ongoing conversation with my boyfriend. So I have a lot of stuff. I have a lot of PR packages. I have a lot of products. And he always tells me like, we need to figure something out. We need like, you got to organize a system. I'm like, I'm aware this is a problem. It's been a problem for the past five years or more, even since I became, you know, part of this industry. I'm very aware of the problem. Why don't you provide a solution? <laughs> because then we can have, you know, it's like so, a problem. It's it's very easy to point that out. Coco, you know what? Um, that's It's funny you mentioned that because um, during COVID, we did this very intimate dinner. Only a few people came. Obviously, they had to feel comfortable. They had to be vaccinated, et cetera. But it was with some beauty editors for the launch of a product. And we were kind of talking about like, what is life like now that, you work from home, you get the packages at home, et cetera. And these were all people who were New York based. What I realized was the packages thing is real. Like if you don't have a doorman, like how, you don't even know what you're missing because it may not be there when you get home or like it was your neighbor picking it up and then like you have to open it, you have to put it somewhere. Like you're not bringing it back to the office because you nobody was going to the office, et cetera. And it was really interesting to listen to people. And so you know what we gave people for um, the holidays that year? We gifted them a home organizer. Oh, God, it was just my birthday. I wish somebody gifted me a home organizer. And so people, it was a service that came in and like helped you organize, like figured, helped you figure mm-hmm. out like, what do you need to get rid of? How do you organize, et cetera. So I want one wow. too. I don't have one. <laughs> it's so funny. I actually hired one when I when we first moved into this apartment back in December. And my boyfriend just said that, he, like, let's just wait a little bit and let's get rid of some things, which I agreed. I have a lot closet full of clothes that I don't wear. So I was getting rid of my clothes. And then I was hoping she's going to come after I got rid of that part. But then she got pregnant. And she had to be at, um, you know, bed rest or something similar. And then I started like talking to some other people and they were not that great. So I'm still on a hunt. So if any home organizers are listening to this, please send me a DM. I have a question about marketing since you were part of that industry for so long and you definitely are an expert. For brands today, because beauty industry is very saturated today, what do you think a brand has to have? Or what kind of qualities a brand has to have? What kind of marketing they should have to stand out? Great question. And you know what? I don't even know if I'm the right person to ask anymore, but I I will tell you two things that may seem super obvious, but that I don't know if people think about enough. One, their idea has to be different (laughs) and their product has to be great above all else. And I think, you know, entry into beauty became it feels like it became very accessible. Um, you know, anybody could kind of like 
launch a product, start a brand, et cetera. But I think if you look on how many of them are still around five years later, the answer is not that many. And I'm start of, I'm seeing now a bunch of brands that were, you know, high to hit, like eat, rip, mm-hmm. kind of hit, got a lot of obviously um, awareness very quickly, had some initial sellouts and died. And it kind of happened with Sephora. They were dropping some uh, brands recently. Yeah. I mean, there, I could mention, you know, many examples, but from big to small, I think those things can happen. And in a way, it's what's impressive, and I'll plug us, about <laughs> Revive is that it's 25 years old and it's still here. And it's not because we do such a great job running the company or anything else. It isn't. It's really because of something I have no accountability or responsibility for, which is the original products were amazing. And a lot of them are still part of the line. And people think the product works. And it it actually does. It actually Um, does. (laughs) It actually does. So that's, I think that, and I don't, I think sometimes, I, I was out to dinner last night with a friend. We were talking about a particular brand and she said, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm watching them because they're in my space and they're really doing well and I, they're spending really aggressively and the things that they're saying are, I'm making sure my team like really looks at the language they use, whatever. She's like, Alana, they can't substantiate their claims. Mm-hmm. And she said, I, I know they can't substantiate them. And I was like, interesting. And, you know, we, I can tell you, you know, we do everything by the book. You know, we test everything that we, that we make. And, you know, sometimes slow and steady wins the race. I 100% agree with that. 100%. You know, walk, don't run. Be sure don't, you don't need 20 things. Make sure you have start with one amazing thing. Take the time to make sure it's amazing. Give it to people. Try, have them try it. Take the feedback. Keep tweaking it until you really think you have something very differentiated. And I think the other thing is, um, it all looks easy and glamorous. It isn't. It's it's hard. And be sure you really love it because you're going to spend a lot of time doing it. <laughs> I'm sure as we were saying how the products, you know, the, the so many products coming into my home and all these editors' homes, a lot of people are going to think, oh, such a bougie problem to have or such a nice, like it, it, it sounds very glamorous, but at some point it just becomes a hassle. And don't get me wrong, I love all my brands who send me PR, but it, it, you stop appreciating it after a while. When you're getting five to 10 packages a week, it doesn't seem as special. And that's why I really appreciate brands who reach out and they either ask to confirm my mailing address because I moved around so many times. And I'm sure that some of my neighbors in New York City are getting my packages and they're enjoying them. And I hope they are. But from a brand's perspective, I think that you have to be on top of your influencers. You have to ask them whether or not they want to receive the product because you don't want to just send out and it's a it's a waste for the brand. And speaking of brands, I would love to understand how did you start with Revive since you had so much experience in the corporate sure. world and you know so much. So you really had to love the brand to be a part of it. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the story is I had just uh, been involved in selling 
another company, the investors in that company are ultimately the investors in Revive. So I had, we had just done a transaction. We had sold another company. I left that company and I actually was not working. I was, uh, I actually was teaching a class on ethical. What kind leader. of class? I, I, teach, I was teaching a class on ethical leadership. How can we sign up for that class? Is that still? Well, I don't, no, I'm not, I'm not teaching it anymore. We could talk about that in a different podcast. But I, I, do, I do like to teach and I, I sometimes guest lecture at different places. But anyway, so and so the investors that I had worked with reached out to me because they started talking to Revive. At the time, Revive was owned by Shiseido, a big corporate company, and they... Shiseido, I think, was, you know, either thinking about they, they had bought Revive in a in a purchase of Revive and Laura Mercier together. The Revive and Laura Mercier were brands that had been run together for about eight years because of a prior uh, sale. I, I think Shiseido was uh, as a big company sort of wasn't quite sure how to position Revive, which was significantly smaller within its big company structure. And the investors that I work with kind of approached them and kept saying, well, why don't you sell it to us? Well, why don't you sell it to us? And finally, they said, um, all right, let's talk how that would happen, because we have this brand, we have the business, you know, we have inventory, and you have, you know, positions in department stores and specialty stores, etc. But there actually isn't a separate team of people who work on it. Like everybody is either working for Shiseido Corporate or they work for Laura Mercier, et cetera. So we, we did a deal with Shiseido where we bought the business, we bought the intellectual property, we bought the inventory. Nobody came with us when we the day we bought the company. There were no people. So we, we actually worked through something called a transition services agreement where we were paying Shiseido and their team to run the company on our behalf as we started to build a company. And we did that in three months and then started running the company, you know, sort of ourselves. And today in our New York office, uh, we're almost 30 people. Uh, wow. But five and a half years ago, we were me and my CFO. And then we went from there. So the way I did, I did um, spend a few months it, you know, basically working in a, a, we call it diligence, where you're researching the brand, the business. We spoke to retail partners, we spoke to customers. We spoke to Dr. Brown, the founder. We also wanted to make sure he wanted to partner with us because, you know, we wanted to be authentic and partner with the founder again and make sure we would be good partners. And I, I did, I fell in, you know, I, you heard me say like, I like brands. I like history. I, you know, and so I just felt that this was a brand that was extremely authentic and it's very unusual, I think, in today's day and age to find something that you believe in that you don't think is a gimmick, that you think is real and has global potential. You know, my experience had grown from understanding brands it only in North America to understanding brands globally. And I think we understood there was really awesome potential for this brand globally. Uh, we weren't yet in China. Today we are. And we knew that this brand would be really meaningful for Chinese customers and kind of had literally the ingredients that, um, that Chinese customers gravitate to, which is performance, founder, authenticity, longevity, and yeah, luxury. Of course. I think I heard that the founder 
What was his name again? Dr. Dr. Brown. I think I've read somewhere or I don't know where I got this information from that he kind of based the formula with burn victims in mind or something about that. Yes. He is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. He's not practicing anymore, but that's his background. And before specializing in aesthetic surgery, aesthetic and reconstructive surgery, he trained in his general residency was in plastics, just in regular plastic surgery. So he did a lot of skin grafts. So skin Mm -hmm. grafts are done on burn wound victims. And so he was at Mass General at a time when they were starting to learn about epidermal growth factor, which uh, was discovered, not by him, in 1960 by two scientists. And then later, epidermal growth factor and the application of epidermal growth factor on skin to help generate a healthy turnover of skin cells, that research won the Nobel Prize. So he had been utilizing epidermal growth factor on burn wound healing while he was in his residency. And, you know, it, what, what happened was when he returned he, to, to Kentucky, which is where he's from, and he set up a practice He also had an academic position at the University of Louisville. And to have an academic position, you need to do research. So he had this idea that, you know, if skin cells were able to turn over more quickly when applied to topically to burn wounds, his question was, would that also mean that when they were applied topically to to skin that wasn't burned, but skin that was starting to age so that the cell turnover process was naturally slowing down, would it speed up the cell turnover process and would that have an anti-aging effect? That's essentially, the, those were the types of studies that he did. And he found, he did double-blind studies and he found that it did, that epidermal growth factor did have an anti-aging benefit, um, which he had got a patent for, published in the New England Journal of Medicine And so what he did was, again, he didn't say, okay, great, Eureka, Mm -hmm. let's make a beauty (laughs) brand. He said, great, I'm going to put epidermal growth factor in a plain moisturizer. He actually used uh, Elizabeth Arden Visible Difference or 8-Hour Cream, one of them. I love the 8-Hour Cream. (laughs) He would just put it in that and he would give it to his patients after surgery. Because, you know, after surgery, whether it's, you know, for the eyes or facelift, you do have scars, right? You know, it's an open wound. And he would give it to people to help the scars and the the healing happen more quickly. But he gave it as a gift. And then people would keep using it. And they're like, wow, this stuff really Mm -hmm. works. And so very, like you talk about right place, right time, like someone who he gave the product to knew somebody who ran all of Neiman Marcus. And basically, it was two years, it was 1996, I think, when they approached him, was like a year or two years after Creme de la Mer launched at Neiman's. And so they knew like the power of like having one cream that could Mm. really sell. And they approached him and they said, listen, if you can commercialize this and make a a product, we'll launch you. And that's how the brand started. Wow. I have to say, ever since that event that was a few weeks ago, I started and I've had a lot of sensitivity and breakouts issues and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, let me give this let me give this entire line a try. Because sometimes, you know, I get a new product and I just add this one product to my regime. But now I promise you and everybody listening, I'm not saying this just because you're on the show right now. I use the the sensitive calming serum every single day. 
and the day cream and the night cream at night and that um eye, eye cream. cream that kelly was talking yeah, about yeah kelly's magic eye cream <laughs> Every day I put that eye cream, I think about her. I need to send her a text. But I have to say my skin really transformed and it doesn't happen often because as I, as I said, I've been getting so much PR for so many years. I tried everything. I can claim that this did transform my life. So I am very happy to hear this. And That's I mean, the, awesome. The story, and yeah. Coco, I saw your, um, because once a month, um, you know, we do a social grid. So I know what gets posted on Instagram every day, not stories, but in the feed. And mm -hmm. so I saw your before and afters and I was Ooh. like, whoa, <laughs> I told you it worked. It really worked. <laughs> I have one final question for you. And this sure. is something that I'm going to start implementing in every episode from now on. And you are the first one answering the question. Okay. What advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, so much advice. I say this a lot and I still am am uh, working with myself on it. But instead of being your biggest critic, be your biggest cheerleader. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's today's advice. And I'm not good at it, but I am trying. I love that. And that's something that we all, I think we all need to be a little kinder to ourselves and not to criticize every move we make. Yeah. And I'd have to tell you that um, I've watched people over the years, like certain people who they're very confident, they know exact, or they appear that way, right? We mm -hmm. never really know. They appear to be very confident. They know exactly what they want to go after. They speak up and they, and they ask for it and they often get it. And I think to myself, oh, well, how come I didn't speak up and ask? Or like, how come I just wasn't that deliberate? And I just sort of like, waited for it to happen to me, I would say all, all of those things. Such a beautiful ending to a beautiful episode. This was such an amazing conversation and I'm so happy we did this. And please tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find Raviv. Sure. So you can find me. Uh, my name is Alana Drell-Zeifer. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I will answer you. And if you give me a little time. And I'm on Instagram, Alana Zai Three Girls, if you want to find me there. More importantly, where you can find Revive, uh, ReviveSkinCare.com. We're at Neiman Marcus, Sex Fifth Avenue, Blue Mercury, uh, Bergdorf Goodman, Nordstrom, not all, but Nordstrom.com, Bloomingdales.com. Um, so we, we hope you um, give us a try. Um, we have some great, really great products that have stood the test of time. So and I'm you sure, can too. <laughs> I'm sure they will after they see my before and afters. <laughs> thank you, Alana, And thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye, Bye -bye. Coco. Thank you. Bye.